On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On today's episode of Complicated Conversations, we are thrilled to chat with Jennifer Herrera, a former philosophy grad student turned literary agent who's fascinated by the stories we tell ourselves to live and the lies we cling to that sabotage our chances at a good life. She grew up in Northwest Ohio and now resides in Philadelphia with her family. The Hunter is her debut novel. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Jenny. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm sorry. Maybe, <laughs> maybe best bio ever. That was oh, oh my god! I heard you guys liked it um, yeah. on the last podcast, mm-hmm. and I made my husband listen. I was like, "Listen, they like my bio. They think it's great." He gave me such a hard time about that. He told me it made me sound pretentious. No. Well, I think that was the subject. <laughs> it's so good. It's so I, good. I, we meant what we said. You know, anyone can do Thank the you. whole normal sort of autobiographical thing, but yours really, oh, it really caught our eye. We loved it. Oh, yeah. And we loved The Hunter. Everyone will love The Hunter. But for those, (laughs) so, and we already know that there's lots of things we want to discuss and clearly things that we have in common or themes we we both enjoy. (laughs) So we're going to get to those, but maybe just first give the little elevator pitch for the book to the listeners. Yeah. Such a pleasure. So, The Hunter follows the story of a New York City detective who has lost her job because she made a really big mistake. She pointed her sidearm at her partner and she let a suspect get away. And when she did this, she didn't only lose her job, she also lost her husband. And she doesn't even know why she did it. And then she gets this call from her brother, who is a police officer in her hometown of Copper Falls, Ohio. And he says, look, there are these three suspicious deaths. Can you come by and investigate? Now, she gets it in her head that if she does this, if she solves this really big case, her husband will come back to her. Her job will suddenly rematerialize and this, this crumbling life that she has will, will somehow piece itself back together. But of course, things can never go back to the way they used to be. We all know this. And it turns out that when she goes home, she has to deal with a lot of emotional baggage that she's been avoiding for years. Um, but the key to solving this case is going to be dealing with that baggage. And it's going to be the key to understanding why she did that thing that she did to blow up her whole life. Mm. I mean, ev- this everything <laughs> about that speaks to us. Everything about your, your setup really speaks to us. Um, I want to talk about Lee first. Uh, and the way you, I mean, again, with the setup, you got me, but then also the end of like 20 pages, I, I want to read a little bit because this moment is so vivid. Lee is there with her brother, she's going back, as you said, to her hometown, and you write, up ahead, a hand-lettered sign came into view, a blink, maybe two. Then both of my hands returned to the wheel. Then a quake cracked my ribs, opened my ribs. Suddenly, there were two of me, the adult detective and the teenage girl, the one with power and the one with none, the sterile sutures sewn tight and the wound that could never heal, only avoid infection. Both versions were real now, only I'd never meant for them to meet. Oof, I love that. It's so good. And it's so good. It's beautifully written. Um, you very vividly told, but I also really love what's underneath it, which is duality and how we all have this duality at the parts of ourselves that we think we can leave behind or we want to leave behind or have left behind, even if we didn't want to. And then the parts that we have formed to get through the world and mm-hmm. the idea of them actually meeting the way, the way you wrote it here is just so amazing. So tell me about Lee. What inspired her? 
what inspired that passage? What challenges you you faced when writing her? Anything you want to talk about with Lee? Yeah, I think Lee is a really interesting character um, to me because she's somebody who... Right, so I'll backtrack a yeah. second. So I love crime fiction. I love this this like very clear structure of there's this murder and you figure out who did it. Uh, or there's an investigation, then you figure out who did it, and you get the sense of like catharsis at the end, like, ah, I can control the world, I can control my environment. Like there's this real psychological thing that happens when we are able to take um, you know, that scenario and, and put it into a small box. But I think my frustration with a lot of crime fiction, and I, I, I believe that you will be sympathetic, is that I felt like I was reading a lot of detectives who felt like they were very male to me and very masculine. And even when I was reading about female detectives, they felt like they were embodying masculine characteristics in order to be taken seriously and in order to have access to power. Um, and that's something I'm really sensitive to because I studied philosophy for years and years and years. Uh, and philosophy is really, um, you know, it's not a discipline with a lot of women. In it. <laughs> yeah. And for a long time, yeah, yeah I, I thought, you know, when I was coming up in it, I was like, oh, it's because I'm different, because I'm special. Um, and I didn't realize all of the ways in which it shut women out and took women, um, you know, and made them suppress the parts of their characters that maybe didn't fit in with a certain mold. And so in making a female detective, I wanted a detective who felt like she embodied the like feminine characteristics that I closely associate with my being a woman. So other other people may sure. have self-definitions sure. that differ, right? But for me, I felt like being a woman is so much about um, inhabiting your intuition. Yes. And so I wanted to build a character who like, you know, inhabits her intuition so deeply that um, that she's sort of you're not sure if she's if she's being deeply intuitive or if she's a little bit nuts um, because she's so in tune to her surroundings yeah. and so that's where the idea really started this this idea that like I had been reading about all of these detectives who felt um, like th they weren't aspirational for me I didn't want to be try to be more like rational or more, um, you know, the ego sort of driving things. I wanted to figure out what it meant to connect to intuition and using your intuition to have access to power. Yes. Oh, I love that. And there, I want to talk more about that in a, in a later question, but I love that it's the masculine is in this way that you're talking about is like, is really looking out and it's, mm. it's kind of an obvious, yes. easy device for detective. It makes sense, but also the way you've positioned it, she has to look in in order to figure out mm -hmm. what's out there. And I really love that. I think this is Thank why you. I wasn't always drawn to crime novels, actually, now that you've articulated this so well, <laughs> because because of that disconnect for me with these detective characters. And even if they had been female, it's still, right. if you're not embracing these feminine qualities, I mean, you really leaned into the feminine with her, which I loved. And, and it was, as you said, a way to give her power, but it also just makes her better at her job. I mean, you know, there's that scene when it's sort of a flashback when she, we see where she first meets her husband when she was like a rookie and he was the lieutenant and the thing that attracted him to her was the way she uses this intuition to solve a case. I mean, she sees mm -hmm. things that people don't see and the way, and it was about scent, which I thought was so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. what she could do with, with, with scents, which, and I mean like by smell when I say scent. Um, so, or then later, you know, one of her uncles says that to her, like really acknowledges the way she approaches a case versus her brother who has the same job, but does it really differently. And I just feel like as women, also, we don't honor those instincts, listen to our intuition. It's sort of beaten out of us in a way. And so was that something else too, that you were kind of focusing on or thinking about like that, that it's something that you wanted to make sure that was a positive in her because for so many of us, it's not, or it's at least tamped down. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, a lot of this is a corrective to the books that I've read and to the experiences I've had, Mm -hmm. because I think I had a lot of internalized misogyny without realizing it, Mm -hmm. right? It was always directed at myself. I don't think I ever like disliked other women, but I hated the things about myself that made me really feminine. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I am a parent of two kids, you know, I have you know, all of the hormonal fluctuations that come with that. And I thought about being pregnant and even like being in a stage where you're breastfeeding and, or chest feeding, and you have such a heightened sense of smell Mm. all of the time. And so for me, like a heightened sense of smell really, really was connected to this sense of being really, being really feminine as I've, you know, I've described it here. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I was pregnant in Manhattan in the summer and the garbage was like, I could smell it from like, <laughs> you know, 12 stories away. I was like, oh gosh, yeah. it, was, it was a lot. Yeah. But yeah, no, sometimes yeah. it's not a good thing. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, it's well, every superpower thing. has its drawbacks, but that's true. <laughs> no, I really love that. And I also love what you said when you started, which is not just that it was a response to what you were reading and feeling like there was lacking. It was also contrary to what you had experienced yourself. I think if you just try to write the opposite of something, it can feel hollow, but this is so clearly filled with your own feelings of it as well, of that experience. Thank you. Thank you. And one of the things, you know, now that we're talking about this subject, one of the other correctives that I tried to make in this book that is a response to a lot of the work that's out there just and also something about me as a reader something that I wanted um, was I wanted to put a woman in a position of power and also have the victims not be women and I think that was really important to me too because I think I was so used to reading these books where you know women are maimed or women are raped or women are assaulted and all of these these ways that felt you know like the more I identified with my femininity, the more that hurt me, the more I felt like, ouch, like I'm the victim here. I'm not the detective in this story. And so reading was kind of an unpleasant experience because I felt as though I was identifying with like the wrong party. Mm -hmm. Um, And so wanting to really switch the roles so that the the detective, the woman has the power and the victims are men. The victims are able-bodied cis men. Yeah. And, yeah. and right, you have the woman coming to town to save the day. I mean, that alone, right, is fantastic. <laughs> and then the question is, can she do everything she needs to do? And I, mm. I yeah, I love that. Too. No, I love that you flipped that. And I want to, we'll get back to that because I want to talk about the, uh, the article you wrote for Crime Reads about that. Oh, so right. do you want to go now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. We can. Um, so I loved this article, the title of which is Men Are the Most Likely Victims of Homicide. Why do crime writers kill so many women? And mm-hmm. it's like you were saying, I mean, your your article begins, violence against women in American crime fiction is as old as the genre itself. And you go back to Edgar Allan Poe and all the things you're talking about that are more typically associated with crime fiction. But that's not actually consistent with the facts, with the actual facts. So you write, Mm -hmm. the incongruity in male versus female violence might make sense if women were, in actuality, more likely to die by homicide than men. But in fact, adult males are the victims in approximately 80% of the murders in this country. Um, And the rest of the article, I mean, I highly recommend it, but it was a really insightful exploration of of the effects, which is what you're talking about, yeah. what that mm-hmm. then does to us as women um, when we continue to see ourselves as victims or or something to be killed off. So um, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, like that, that, that article and sort of the reaction that it had in you. Yeah. And when did, I'd like to ask, when did that become part of the story? Was that one of those tiny mm-hmm. seeds that was, you know, that, that ended up sprouting this whole thing? Or was that something that came later in the process? Or was it something that we've talked to many authors who they write the whole thing and then they realize like, oh, this is probably (laughs) why I did this, right? So I'm I'm curious about that too. I think probably all of the above as um, deeply unsatisfying as that answer might be. (laughs) (laughs) I think I, you know, I think part of what I'm talking about too is like I'm starting to learn to trust my like subconscious more as well um, and how that's connected to your intuition um, and how that's different from your ego and your ego feeling like this very like male centric thing. And so when I first started to write the book, 
uh, I had to decide who would die, right? Like that's like the big thing with, with yes. crime fiction, or at least with the sort of crime fiction that I write that has this very, I hope, satisfying arc. And the first person I actually pictured was like a young woman. And I was like, a young, beautiful woman, yeah. oh, which yeah. was so upsetting because mm-hmm. I thought, oh my God, why did I do that? Like, like stop it. What yeah. was that thing in me that made me think that the person who should die was a woman? And so that's when I started to backtrack and I started to look at statistics and I started to look at all of the books that I had read recently and, and how many of them had women who died. You know, and this past October, I did sort of an informal study. You know, it's really, really hard to study how many books have as their inciting incidents the deaths mm. of women because so many books are added to this yeah. genre all the yeah. time. Yeah. Right. It's like hundreds, yeah. hundreds a day by some accounts. So I looked at the top like 50 or so best selling books on Amazon since that was some sort of sample size. Um, and it appeared as though women were killed off at a, three to one ratio of men. And that was just like, oh, no wonder I was thinking that a woman had to die if I was writing a crime book. It's because women often die. Yeah. Right? And so I was like taking part in this, um, you know, this subconscious script. And one of the things that I think about too, I mean, this is sort of off topic, but I'll, I'll come back to it, is something else that I think that I try to embrace with this book, which is about women's stories and how those differ from men's stories. Um, the way I had been taught to think of story was about, you know, a hero's journey, Mm -hmm. a hero's journey where you have this inciting incident and you have this building events and this climax and you're done. (laughs) Um, but that's kind of like an, my friend called it the ejaculation version of stories. (laughs) I don't know if you have to edit that out, but of course not. We're already rated explicit. Oh, you are. Congratulations. Well, if you curse, if you have any curse word in there, we can't guarantee that that won't come out. So, Um, and this idea that women's stories and the way that women's bodies work are very cyclical. And so wondering, like, what are someone's cycles of experience that they're going through and wanting to find, especially for Lee, something that, that brings about this cycle, like this return home is yeah. a cycle. Um, and so once I was able to think about stories in terms of cycles and not in terms of like this monotonically increasing function then I was able to say, oh, this feels real to me. And that's when the book started to feel as though, ah, this is what I needed and this is what I was doing. Um, And one of the things I really relied on when I was looking at what are the feminine story structures that differ from a hero's journey because I looked at this book, um, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Do you know this book? Yes, I actually have it. Okay, yes, it's it's like, yeah, I have it like right here. What I love about this book is that she takes all of these different, in this case, like fairy tales or stories that are true across cultures, and she gives them a structure. So it feels like here are the things that are happening in each of these pieces. So then I was able to take the structure of one of those stories and actually impose it on the structure of what happens in The Hunter. So you're getting the sense that it's not a hero's journey, although it, it has some things in common with it. Um, and how, when I was able to do that, the story felt more real for me. Yeah. Oh, I love that you're saying it's not that, you know, the woman can't die in a crime detective, right. but you were saying, I, you know, it just popped into my head. It should be a woman. That is, and I think you were saying this before too, that's not your subconscious. That is something programmed in you. Yeah. So when you investigate yes. it and looked at it, you're like, well, that's yes. not what I want to do. And what can I do? And how does this work? And uh-huh. so it's it was all done so consciously and thoughtfully. And that is like, that's our bread and butter here. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's all we really want people to do. It's not the binary choice you make. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it the woman that dies or is it the man that dies? It is how you get there and how important that is. So thank you for sharing all of that. It's fantastic. And I love that distinction you make between something that's intuitive and internal and something that's programmed. Yeah. yeah. Because I think that that's something that everybody struggles with. Oh, yeah. Right? This idea of which parts of myself are intuitive and which are programmed. and And again, like... I grew up in, you know, when I was a kid, I, I played a lot of competitive chess. Um, you know, this is like a very male world. Yeah. Um, I went into philosophy, this very male world, and it took me forever to realize that, like, that was because there were certain values that were programmed in me and not necessarily because 
I was tapping into a deep part of myself that needed fulfilled. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hyper-rational person. That's not how I, I see the world, but that's how, by intellectualizing it, I was able to tap into these structures of power that made me feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. like, if we're, we're talking about the crime reads piece, when I was writing that, actually, I realized why I'm so afraid of like, you know, this open sexuality or why I was so afraid of motherhood. And it was because I felt as though something, you know, external to me was programming me to say, the more you act as a woman, the less safe you mm. are. Yeah. Oh, um, and really unpacking yeah. that. Yes. Yikes. Oh, yeah. And and there should be more discussions like that. And yeah. it doesn't, again, it's not like, oh, don't become a mother. Or, you know, it's not about where you get to. It's kind of like what you're thinking about. And, yeah, I, I just think. And where did it really come from? I mean, yeah. I hear I hear a voice in my head, right? We all have our internal voice. You know, I joked mm -hmm. with Corinne knows this. I joke about my therapist. But, like, I've determined that sometimes or lots of times, right, that voice is my mother's voice, right? Very common, I'm sure. Uh, you, yeah, right? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, or you're saying we're talking about programming, you know, internalized misogyny and, like, society. But, I mean, a lot of it is also family and, and other mm -hmm. things. Your programming is just comes from not just the outside world, but, you know, your little world that you were raised in, that's actually probably the most profound impact mm -hmm. on you. And to tell someone, you know, maybe you don't really think that, like, what are you talking about? Yes, I do. <laughs> because they don't, they've never stopped to go, wait, do I, is that yeah. actually something I believe? Or yeah. is that really how I yeah. feel? Or did I, it's really hard to work the yeah. difference yeah. to sift through. It's sort of a life's work, really. It, yeah, mean. it is because the life's work is first identifying it and then yeah. maybe like rejecting it, trying something else. And then you can come back to it and be at peace with coming back to it because now it's yours. Your choice. Now it's you not chose programmed. It yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or at least it's conscious yes. Like yes. when you're doing exactly. it. You're like, I'm aware that I am, like, I, when I'm really stressed out, um, my husband always jokes that I'll start using, like, these weird Latin phrases <laughs> when we're arguing and it gets, like, really heated. Mm -hmm. He's like, you need to step away right now. You just said ad infinitum. <laughs> oh, this is great because yeah. I use legal terms. Yeah. We're both lawyers. Same. And I use legal terms. I swear <laughs> to God I do the same thing. And then I'm like, oh, my God, did I just say that out loud? But it... <laughs> It's your, yeah, you just yeah. fall right It's back. your coping mechanism. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. when I feel unsafe, I like, I try to be like hyper rational mm -hmm. and I try to like go, to, like I'll be like modus ponens. And <laughs> it's just like, it's so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But now that I know that I'm doing it, then when I get to that yeah. place, I can take a step back and I can go, oh, yeah. I need to like take a break. But also yeah. it's still the right word. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm still very yeah. smart. Yes. <laughs> still very yes. All of those things. Yes. I feel like we're kindred spirits. Yeah. Oh, yes. Gosh, yes. yes. Uh, and also I want to, we're going to keep going in that direction because yeah. the book, this book, The Hunter evokes kind of some supernatural, mystical ideas. Now, again, it's not about the, it's a crime thriller. It really is. So, but it's infused with some of these feelings for me. Um, at one point, uh, Lee's dad says that their house was a gift from the fairies. And is it Oshi? Is that? Yeah, Oshi. Oh, okay. It, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't speak okay. Irish. Actually. Okay. <laughs> but, and then there's another moment when Lee is, uh, has her kind of case files all spread out and mm -hmm. she likens it to a tarot deck of tarot cards that she has to mm -hmm. like search for the meaning in order to understand it for herself it, like look out to mm -hmm. find what's in um so on this podcast we investigate and believe in a lot of these things astrology tarot crystals uh, mystical ideas mm -hmm. of a way of knowing ourselves knowing the world investigating what's what's going on so but i wondered just because it's in the book doesn't mean you subscribe to it in any way, shape, or form. So I meant I wanted to ask where you kind of fall on that. I think it's, um, you know, it's a place of learning and openness and curiosity for me. And I don't know what else that is beyond that right now. I know that you guys ask about astrological yes. signs. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is important. So I came prepared. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I am a Scorpio sun 
a Pisces moon and a Cancer rising. Oh my god! Yeah, I see the face. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're just water, water everywhere. Oh That's my god! And also, <laughs> Corinne has been having a moment with Scorpios. They're just they're surrounding oh. her, so this is perfect in like a positive way or in a yeah. negative way. Very positive way. Oh, this is wonderful. They, Thank yeah. you. And you're Cancer, right? I, I am. Um, I'm Aries, sun, Aries rising, but I have a lot of cancer. I'm Mars in cancer. Maybe that's yes, what which is how you take action. And I have a lot of Pisces. Mm-hmm. So this makes a lot of sense. And I have no water, <laughs> like no water. I'm like the desert. I mean, not only am I a Leo, I mean, fine. I'm Leo sun, Leo moon, a Libra rising, but even my other big signs, my Mercury, my Venus, they're all in Leo. I, I just, I have no wow. water signs in my chart anywhere. Yeah. I know. Well, so this is really funny when I keep like talking about my coping mechanisms. And it's like, honestly, part of where I, I started to believe a little more, be more curious about astrology was when I started to realize that this intellectual version of myself was a persona. Mm. And I was like, well, why did I create that persona? Why did I need that so much? And it was like, oh, because I have like these really big emotions and they're really scary to me. Mm -hmm. And so I have this way of being external to the world. I have a way of dealing with those things so that I don't have to feel so vulnerable with this emotional side of myself. And then I was like, oh, maybe there, maybe there's something here. And so, you know, I have my cafe astrology, um, you know, papers, my papers and every so often I'll go to them and I'll read through them and I'll, I'll get to this point where I was like, oh, through reading about this, I've learned, I I always think of it as like a heuristic as like, I'm learning a way of interpreting my life. And I think that it can be really useful. I mean, one of them said, you know, that I'm probably a writer and that, you know, just like all of these, all of these little Mm -hmm. things that felt very true. And I think about it too, as like an area for growth Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. to be in touch with that side of things. And in part, because, you know, we think about women's bodies again, like this idea of cycles, um, like women's bodies are very tied to what's going the on moon. with the moon. Mm-hmm. We talk yes. about this, and all so the like, time. why mm-hmm. would we think that it's not the case that that yeah. the rest of the time it has some sort of um, effect right. in terms of who we become and what traits we have? So yeah, openness and curiosity. I I'm not sure where it lies beyond that, but I think that there's a lot of truth to it, and I think that I am a more grounded person because I'm learning about what astrology can teach. I, I love that. Oh my gosh. This, I mean, with the A plus answers everywhere. I'm sorry. We're just going to have to close up shop after this one because we're not going to be able to interview anyone else. This is so good. She just said that That's better than compliment. we say. Oh, without a why doubt. I know. It's can a you write for that us. for us? We'll give you credit word. on every single time. <laughs> And we've now arrived at the Jennifer Herrera question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, please. I would, I would die. Love it. it would make me so unbelievably happy so, oh. because I'm such a big fan of your podcast. Oh, so I was actually very nervous coming on oh. here. Oh. I drank way too much coffee. I like, <laughs> something sugared. I was like, these people are like so smart and on top of it. And I'm just going to like, they're going to ask me a question. I'm going to blank out. Oh no, no, clearly that is not true, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But that was really right on about astrology. My gosh. And so the intuition, this just all tracks. I mean, all of this, your signs. It does. It does. The the water, the, and the Scorpio. Scorpio is very, I was going to ask you a question. I still want to ask you, although I'm going to pretend I don't know the answer is you're just a Scorpio. (laughs) But (laughs) how, how did you find your interest in philosophy and psychology? Um, Was it in college? Was it before that? Can you trace it back to anything in particular? Yeah, your your face is lighting up. I love it. (laughs) Well, because it's, it's one of those answers that I, I know pretty well, and it, it always has some sort of weird effect on people, and I'm never sure, like like telling people I'm a triple water sign. Mm-hmm. Like I could see your eyes, which mm-hmm. was so like wonderful that I could see your face, mm-hmm. because I, I know what effect that has on people. Um, so this one's a little strange as well, because I, so there's, there are pieces of Lee's story that I think ring true for me because of my experiences. And one of those is that, you know, I grew up in a city 
or a bigger city. I grew up in a trailer park um, in a place where, you know, you had a lot of diversity, not economic diversity, but other sorts of diversity. And then my parents got this idea that we needed to leave, which granted three kids in a trailer was probably not very comfortable. Um, So they were able to get a house in this really small town where everybody was related, everybody Mm. looked alike. And there was this the sense of like, we were the outsiders. Everybody had a a political inclination that was not my family's political inclination. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really tough to feel connected to that place because I was always reminded at how different I was. And so I think then I I grew up with a sense of, of not fitting in. And because of that, when I was given the opportunity to start college really early, I decided that I wanted to do that. So the state of Ohio had a program where if you got certain test scores, they would let you just like move on to college early and the state of Ohio would pay for it until you graduated high school. And so I started um, when I was 15 taking lots and lots of college classes and my mom would have to drop me off because like I couldn't drive and it was, it was really interesting. (laughs) And I I learned maybe about certain things that I shouldn't have like a little too early. Mm -hmm. Um, But so then when I graduated college, I had 150 credit hours. I graduated high school when I was a junior in college. So I have taken almost every single class across the sun, Mm. or that's not a phrase, (laughs) Um, every single class that the university offered. Um, But the one, the two classes I never took were psychology and creative writing. (laughs) So of course, like those became interests later in life because I never got the chance to do that. Um, And then in terms of philosophy, why did I gravitate toward philosophy? I think probably if we were giving the astrological answer, it would be tied to this this deep sense of a desire for meaning Mm. and to understand the meaning of things. Mm -hmm. And this deep, um, I have a a discomfort with things that don't feel true. And so really, really wanting something that I felt like was attempting to explore what truth was. And I think I was also really excited about this idea of discovering some sort of objectivity, right? I I had this impression that there was such a thing Mm -hmm. and that it didn't matter that I was a female. It didn't matter what my race was. It didn't matter what my age was. I could disappear into this Cartesian self, um, and then have this this very strong sense of control. Mm. And it took me a very long time to realize how false that yeah. was. But at the time, it was very appealing yeah. for somebody who, um, first off, was afraid of her emotions yeah. and wanted control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was appealing to somebody who, you know, wanted to learn, you know, capital T truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. I can, yeah. I can relate to so much of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up. I, I grew up, me and my brother, um, in not a great neighborhood in the city, and my parents moved us out to very rural area at the end of Long Island, wow. which is now beautiful and wonderful, and everyone loves it and knows it, but when I moved there, it was not that way. It was all cornfields. It was also mm-hmm. all Polish and Irish people, and yeah. I was like the dark one. I mean, mm-hmm. so... And an outsider in so many ways, kind of many ways that you were talking about. And um, another thing that really spoke to me was uh, that was why I became a lawyer. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. I, the outsider thing was one thing, but then this, in my house, there was poverty, addiction, chaos, and Mm -hmm. the law was so clear. It was, yes. you know, black and white. This is what you cannot do. This is what you can do. And that, you know, just spoke to me. It was that's the control how you could yeah. control things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and an and orderly. Was, yeah, and I was just stable. I was job. on a mission looking for that for anything mm-hmm. that made sense of things that fe- felt very chaotic and mercurial to me. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to only look at the things that were clear to me. And that was like the direction mm-hmm. I headed in. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now I write mm-hmm. for most of my, <laughs> so of course. But I once heard that a, a response to trauma is black and white thinking. Yeah. I think yeah. about that all the yeah. time. Yeah. Like when you can't hold space for that tension mm-hmm. of not understanding, yeah. um, then you resort to, well, everything's fine yeah. or everything's terrible, right? You resort to binaries because the middle is so uncomfortable. Yeah. So that makes complete sense. Yeah. 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 And for me, it, it was uncomfortable but it was also so much as Kate's saying 
out of my control. I was never the one that like walked in the room and chaos ensued, right? It was always imposed on me. And so mm-hmm. to to get myself straight, meaning, you know, like act this way, act as you were saying in the beginning, you know, very logical and and um, you know, clear about what I was and not emotional was the best thing for me because it was a reaction to what I saw and was uncomfortable with. So makes mm-hmm. so much sense. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's predictable yes. too, yes. right? I think that's Definitely. the worst part about, um, you know, having somebody who, you know, has some sort of addiction. It's like they, they impose their unpredictability upon yeah. you and they also react to you. in I think binaries, right. Where it's like they're off the wall mm-hmm. or they're so nice because they're making up for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. there's a yeah. lot I can relate yeah. to. Yeah. And, and it's funny because whether that's genetics or learned, and, you know, I do tend to think it's a little bit more genetics because my brother is the same, you know, grew up in the same house and had very different experiences. I then became, I was comfortable with me being out of control and chaotic and mercurial mm-hmm. because I knew how to, I was, when you said predictable, I was predictable because I could change it. I could, you know, then snap and yes. be in my right yeah. brain. And yeah, so. Mm-hmm. This is so, this is, you're opening up things for me too. One of the, I mean, um, yeah, I've always dated people who like don't drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I've never, anyway, it's one of those things where I, later in life, I like, I saw this pattern and I was like, oh, I wonder why I do that. And it's like that desire for stability yeah. and this feeling as though you can be the one who's unpredictable. Yes. Like I'm fine with me yes. drinking, but like the partner mm-hmm. or the person I rely on, like having any sort of drug or alcohol issues, I'm like, it's too much for it, me. And like, I back off. Yeah. Oh, same. My wow. my husband is as stable as they come. So, uh-huh. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Mine's like this, yes. too. Mine's an Aquarius. Steady, stable. Mine's a Gemini, which you wouldn't normally you think. Wouldn't but think. I love yes. Geminis. Same, same. They're the social butterfly <laughs> of the Zodiac. Um, <laughs> but, we, so then, all right, but then this, like, take us through, though, obviously we talked about you studying philosophy, but then literary agent. Yes, yes. Now yes, author. Yes, yes. So walk us through that. Uh, so I was in grad school and I was really, really miserable. And I didn't know why I was miserable at that time. Like I hadn't had any interest in psychology. I didn't, I'd never been to therapy. I didn't have any access to that world. And I didn't, I honestly don't think I, I gave a lot of credence to it, right? Because of this environment where I was taught to believe you are a Cartesian self. I think therefore I am. There is no, you know, race attached to that eye. There's no gender. There's no anything, um, and so I was in grad school. I was completely miserable. I was like getting sick all the time. I, I like, I felt like I, I kept thinking that I had an autoimmune disease. I was in and out of like the health services constantly because I felt like there was something wrong with my body. Um, and I felt like I was being unwell by being in graduate school. So I decided to take a break. And when I started doing that, um, you know, I got some opportunities for ghostwriting and that those came out sort of out of nowhere. One, I was working at a coffee shop with a professor who had a book under contract and we started talking and one thing, you know, led to, uh, some help with his book. And then the other, I was at a writing conference, you know, because I was writing as a way to like cope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read something I wrote out loud and somebody came up to me afterwards and he said, Hey, I loved what you wrote. Could you ghostwrite for me? And so once I started ghostwriting, I was like, oh, this is great. (laughs) I love this. It's really easy for me. It's really intuitive for me. And it comes naturally and it makes me feel really good about myself. So I thought, I need to do this for a job. Um, I started applying. I was in California at the time. I started applying to jobs in New York City and nobody would hire me. I was 27. Um, That worked against me. I didn't have the pedigree. That worked against me. And, um, I wasn't an English major, all of these things, they got my application and it, it was never, I couldn't get anything. So I eventually just moved to New York city with my poor sweet husband who like came along for all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, God bless mm-hmm. him. And I just started like cold pitching myself to places until somebody hired me. Um, and I started at Europa editions and I, uh, I started there when we were just publishing the second Elena Fronte, um, mm-hmm. book in the Neapolitan series. And I remember starting to read these books and, um, 
you know, I had always had a lot of anxiety about whether or not I would be any good at this job. I thought my tastes aren't really like literary. They're not highfalutin. Like people are going to see through me. And I remember reading the first of the books and just sitting in a dark room and needing to be by myself for a long time because I was like, this was so powerful and I loved this so much. So then when the book started to become really like the thing that they became, I felt so validated. I thought, yes, "Yes, I can do this job. I do have tastes. Like my intuitions do matter. And from there, you know, I just started applying because that was an internship. I started applying to real jobs and eventually nobody in editorial would hire me again. I was 27, clearly too old or something. (laughs) And, um, and then I got my first job at an agency and I started working as an agent. I work now with mostly nonfiction books in part because it's so separate from fiction. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can do fiction still Mm -hmm. and I'm not, I'm not stealing anything from my clients. Yeah. I'm not getting jealous of them, right? Which I'm a Scorpio. I do yes. get jealous. Yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Naturally. Sorry. Love that. Naturally, I do get jealous. Um, and so it's been really nice for me because I still get to feed this deep curiosity that I have about so many subjects. And I get to like play fairy godmother a oh, lot of times. Yes. Like We know how big of a deal it is to like get your book published. To go into a bookstore and see it on the shelves and like I get to I get to take people who have maybe ideas that are okay and I get to help them like hone those ideas into these these big things that then get to sell for lots of money mm-hmm. and then they feel as though, you know, they've been given this really powerful gift when in, you know, I just taught them how to do this, you know, this thing. Oh. So I love my job and I love how different it is from being a novelist. Mm. But that's the path, whatever that was. And when did you decide to write The Hunter? When did you were like, this is not enough for me? Or I just, you know, the idea came. What, how did that happen? So I had, I had been sort of writing on the side for a long time, but nothing I wrote was ever good enough. And I knew this. I mean, there's, there's some quote about needing your taste to catch up with your abilities. Um, and that was certainly true where I would write and I would just feel so frustrated. And then I was pregnant with my first child, Carmen, and I had the unfortunate experience of, um, really bad perinatal depression. I mean, it was, uh, probably the worst experience of my life. (laughs) I had no idea how terrible depression was, but I remember like lying on the bathroom floor and like not wanting to be alive and like not thinking that anybody would come find me or care about me. So it was this this intense weight that I carried around for nine months. And then as soon as I had the baby, it was lifted. Wow. It was the craziest yeah. thing yeah. Um, where I suddenly felt almost like euphoric. I was like, I'm sleeping two hours a night, yeah. but I love this. Yeah. And I was like, sing, you know yeah. what I mean? And mm-hmm. so at that point I developed, I think, a confidence to be able to start something new and to be excited about it. And this is going to sound so ridiculous, but I felt like the pressure had been taken off of me to make the book, um, you know, my legacy. Mm. Because my, you know, like yeah. I have, a, I had this kid yeah. and I could never do anything that would be as good as that. Mm-hmm. And so like, I would just try to like write something that people enjoyed and that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And the pressure had really lifted for me mm. when that happened. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. I didn't, I've not, I've not actually heard, I, you hear a lot about postpartum depression, but the perinatal, my God. So yeah. you're carrying it's really a literal weight talking. and an <laughs> yes. emotional weight. Yeah. Like, yeah. I I still have a lot of discomfort talking about it as you, I'm going to just like talk about astrology all the time. I can, I can be very private, but, um, I think that's the reason that I talk about it more now than I ever did because, um, because I don't think people realize how, how common it is. I mean, I remember when I was, when I was pregnant, I, um, you know, I saw a friend's mother and she said, Oh, how's the pregnancy? I said, uh, I don't feel amazing. And she was like, Oh, that happened to me. She said, I was pregnant with the twins and I was getting ready to leave my husband. And I, you know, I packed a bag and I was like, what happened? Yeah. What did you leave him? Like, I was like, mm-hmm. right on the edge yeah. of my seat. And she was like, no, I had the baby and it went away. Oh my gosh. And I was like, Oh, that was depression, yeah. but you yeah. didn't have a name for it. Yeah. It was just, Oh, pregnancy makes you crazy. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you kept saying. Pregnancy oh. makes crazy yeah wow that's that is fascinating we if you have listened to anything we've talked about on this podcast we always just more stories like the even if it's not something that's so as common as that we just if it helps anyone because 
you know, you're just saying this one person, you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was what I had. And it really, it makes a difference. And it also just helps open up like Kate saying, oh, I knew about postnatal, but not perinatal. And it just opens up a different world for all of us to, to feel more connected. And I think so too. And I think that we're so used to being gas lighted or gas lit. I actually don't know the correct version of that. It's like about things going on with women's bodies. And so this idea that this woman just kept saying, oh, pregnancy makes you crazy. Oh, pregnancy makes you crazy. I think about that all the time because I was like, oh, like you were, you were in trouble and you, it was so serious. You were going to leave your husband. Right. And and nobody, nobody recognized that in you. Nobody said you need help. Yeah. Nobody like gave you any resources because you were probably taught that same phrase yeah. from mm-hmm. someone else. Oh, pregnancy makes you crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I agree with you that it's like I'm sharing it in part because I know and I want, uh, I want if if you know people experience that to be aware of it and if they see it in other people. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of more yeah. stories, I hope there are more stories yes. coming from you. <laughs> what is the next cycle? What What are we the working on? I love that you put it that yes. way. Uh, yes. So I have another book under contract, <gasps> Lee's next book, Yes. Um, which I think is so exciting. And and one of the exciting, and I just have to point this out because um, because we've been talking about like the subconscious so much, is that I didn't know until I started listening to the audiobook of my book that when she says her name Lee O'Donnell, that it sounds like Leo Donnell, like Leo, like a cat O'Donnell or Donnell. <laughs> and then um, in the book, one of the characters calls her Wildcat as a nickname. And then I went, oh, my oh gosh. that's why he calls her Wildcat, because her name sounds like Leo. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That <laughs> anyway, it was amazing. just like this one of like these wild, yeah. these wild um, moments where you're like, oh, my subconscious was doing something really cool there. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that that it does that. I'm so glad that I'm not in control and how relieving that is. So the next book um, is another Lee O'Donnell book. And this book I think is really great because she, you know, the first book focused so much on her experiences um, and her sort of coming of age. And I think, you know, it ends on a note where uh, maybe you're unsure of what happens with Lee and her husband. And so the next book I think her husband is a bigger focus mm-hmm. and you get to understand a deeper dynamic to their relationship so that you understand sort of the ways in which they, they struggle to connect in part because of their different life experiences. Mm, yeah. Yes. Ooh, oh, I wow. do want more of them. That's yes. <laughs> it's exciting. Yes. Very exciting. Well, thank you. you have gone very deep with us, which I expected, but man, I just, I was going to say, I couldn't stop. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the clock. We've gone all sorts of over everything. And thank you for being game for that. I, oh, thank you guys. I'm so, this was so exciting for me. Um, I, as I said, I've been a big fan of the podcast. So like getting to see your faces talking to me is pretty cool. That's oh, awesome. wow. We love thank that. You. Wait, can we, can we ask you one more question? What are mm-hmm. you loving before we go? Do you have Oh, yeah, any yeah, books or TV shows, movies, whatever you're loving right now. Yeah. Um, prepare for another long-winded answer. Yes. I'm so sorry. You can <laughs> you can cut me down if you want. So one of one of the things that I think has been really interesting, like working in publishing, is that I have to read all of the bestsellers all of the time to like know what's selling. Yeah. And so when I read old books, it's very exciting for me because they don't matter. Like they don't uh, matter to yeah. my job. Yes. It's never going to be a comp title. Right. It's never going to be something that somebody wants to talk to me about. There's never going to be like a think piece about <laughs> it. It's such a relief <sighs> to read an older book. And one of the interesting things that's been happening with me is that I keep revisiting books that my parents loved, mm. um, you know, that I had, I had turned away from for so long because I was like, ah, oh, mom and dad like yeah. that. Ugh. Um, and so one of the books I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying is Anne Rice. I've never read any Anne Rice okay. before, mm-hmm. but I'm reading her book about witches Ooh. because in part, because of that show on AMC called the Mayfair witches, oh. which was based off of her book. Okay. Um, called, I keep wanting to call it in the witch of time, which is definitely is not, um, the witching hour. It's called the witching hour. And I love it because it is so not of this time. 
Like right now, I think to write, you know, I pro- it's probably 200,000 words to write like this huge, enormous introspective novel where like nothing happens for long periods. Like you just couldn't do yeah. that yeah. in the state of like publishing right, the right market now. Wouldn't and I'm finding bear it. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely yeah. not. Your editor would be like, well, let's talk about binding costs <laughs> yeah. because this is yeah. not going to work <laughs> yeah. out. So it's so thrilling to just, to read somebody that, again, like my parents had had loved her growing up and to realize like, oh, this is a really deeply interesting person. Mm -hmm. And I think if you guys haven't read The Witching Hour, you would in fact love it because you can see too the ways in which her psychology plays into into the book. So like she lost a child when the child was five, the child had leukemia, she had an alcohol addiction and rice. I went a deep dive. Um, But you can see like how all of these things come into play in her book and how that gives her this this obsession with with death and with otherworldly things and how that plays into um how she sees the world oh my gosh i love that i you think of Anne rice i think of vampires so i'm all over the riches now yes (laughs) sounds much more up our alley yes yeah, I don't really like reading books with the protagonists as men as often as possible. So, I I just don't. Same. Doesn't doesn't don't meet our do requirements that. either. <laughs> <laughs> but this one's interesting. It is of its time, which I think can be unfortunate in certain places where she'll say something and you'll be like, Ugh, "Oh, yeah. I really wish you had not done that." Mm-hmm. But um but it's like a nice luxurious bath. Oh, I love it. Right. Love it. Love Perfect. It. I will definitely be picking that up for sure. Oh, please let me know what you think about it. Because nobody's talking to me about yes. this book because it's, you know, yes. 30 years old yes. or something. Yes. There you go. Well, thanks again for joining us. This was absolutely just wonderful. Thank you. It's Thank nice you. Time. We're going to have to reset before our next guest. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.